encourage you to open up to a couple of places this morning. The first one of those is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and put something there. There's just one verse there that I want to read later on. And then run to uh, Romans chapter 9. And let me remind you of what you have right now, either in your lap or on your phone, is absolutely amazing. You have the very words of God. And I hope you never get over that. We have a God who has graciously and mercifully spoken to His people. And we get to hear what He said. Romans chapter 9, I want to start in verse 22. And I'm going to read a little bit down to 10.3. So if you're there with me, please stand and then remain standing as we worship the Lord for His Word. Again, Romans 9, beginning in verse 22, and I do this for context. Actually, we're starting in 24, but we needed a little run-up to understand, so that's what we have. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, Even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As He says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not My people, meaning the Gentiles, I will call them My people, and her who was not beloved, again the Gentiles, I will call her beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, this righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him, meaning Christ, will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel or for them is for their salvation. For I testify about Israel that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, Israel did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. We're going to be in Romans 9 this morning, uh, but I do want to speak to you personally um, for just a minute about the difficulties of life 
and the need for worship. I used to come up here trembling for two reasons. One, I was absolutely terrified to speak in front of anybody, and that went on for several years uh, before I actually got comfortable for you people. Occasionally when somebody asks me to preach now, I still get that same feeling because I don't know the crowd that I'm preaching to, and I, I crawl up there trembling because this is not something I normally would have done. Second thing that I would crawl up here trembling for is the responsibility to get it right. And uh, that's always weighed on my heart, and it continues to weigh on my heart. So that's one of the reasons that I come trembling to the pulpit. You better get this right. But I have a new reason uh, now that I'm not nervous anymore, and it's just the weight of the world. Um, some things are overwhelming. And a lot of you are overwhelmed as you pull up in here this morning. And I want you to know, your pastor has some things, too, that I crawl up in here wondering if I even should be up in here because they're so heavy. I talked to somebody last, well, yeah, last week, carrying a burden that I don't personally think I could carry. Terrible circumstances in their life. Um, but they're not going to church right now. And that's the part that breaks my heart the most because you need to realize you have to have this to live. Not me preaching, but the worship of God. You have to draw close to God in communion personally and corporately just to survive. So even though you are burdened with a great many of things, I want you to always come. Even if you don't think you can or don't want to, I want you to come. Because this is for your good, no matter what weights you carry. And I am convinced that what you need is what I feed you every week. I try to be like a doctor writing the right prescription. It is not felt needs. You need to get your eyes on the Lord. And the more that you know about Him and how good He is, I promise you the better you'll be. Because you get your mind off of your circumstances and you get your mind off of your weights and you get it on His glory and you let Him carry that load and the stronger you become and the farther you go. And I know that doesn't make sense because it warms your heart if I'll talk about your felt needs, but all I'm doing is getting you to focus on yourself. And that's the last place you need to be. You need to focus on your Heavenly Father and let Him carry you while you struggle. And so that's why I continue on preaching through Romans 9. But please don't get the idea, man, this has nothing to do with my problem. Oh, man, it has everything to do with what you struggle with. Because your God has a plan, and your God is involving you in His plan. And that's good to know, because in the end, everything will be well with our soul. So let's just keep walking, and let's just keep turning our hearts toward Him and understanding who He is and what He has done. Okay? With that being said, Romans 9 is really what we just sang about. Jeremy just led us in singing about the Father's plan unfold. And in Romans 9, that's one of those grand moments where you actually see the plan of God unfolding before your eyes and you realize, hey, wait a minute. I'm a part of what God, who created the heavens and the earth, I'm a part of what He's doing. 
And because you're a part of what he's doing, you understand how this whole thing's going to end. Now, the mistake, and it is, a bit of, it is a mistake. Don't try to tell me it's not. The mistake that I've made the last three weeks in Romans 9 is I've carried us so deep down in the woods that we've lost sight of the forest. I've tried to explain every tree and every plant and every rock and every brook. And there's a lot of detail in these passages. And, and you, you do need to spend time looking at all the trees and all the flowers and all that stuff. But sometimes you got to lift up your head over the tree line and get a shot of the forest and go, oh my, this is a lot bigger than I thought. And I'm going to try to do that this morning because I want to give you a picture of the Father's plan that is unfolding. Because when we talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, most people do that separated from God's grand plan. And if you do that separated from God's grand plan, you don't understand it. It's kind of offensive and it seems so random and you worry about things like your kids or somebody else in your family. And you're going, well, are they in or are they out? Uh, did he choose them? Did he choose her? Did he choose him? And you, you get into that kind of mindset and what you're doing is you're ground level focusing on detail and you can't see the greater picture of, of the glory that God is accomplishing before our very eyes and I thought about an illustration to help you get a hold of this. And, it, and this is what the Lord put on my heart, and I haven't been able to get away from it. And that's the stars. And if you go outside on a beautiful, clear night and look at the stars with an untrained eye like mine, you remark at the beauty, you're impressed with the glory, you remem remember that it is God who set them in place, who calls them all out by name but you don't see the order or design. It's just a bunch of random stars that's giving light at the night, and you remark about how pretty those are, but I don't know what you're doing. And while I was thinking about this, I remembered a passage in Job that Job says, and you've got to remember, Job is one of the oldest books in your Bible. I don't know when it was written, but sometime it's following that timeline of Genesis. It's very old, okay? And listen to, listen to Job's trained eye about the stars. In Job 9, 9, I've already run away past my notes, he says this, who makes the bear, in reference to the constellation, they've named it something else these days, but I'm going to stick with Job. I bet Job's right about that. Who's named the bear? Who makes the Orion or the Pleiades? All three constellations. And then he says this, and the chambers of the south. You can't, you can't miss that phrase because he named the northern constellations by name, and then he mentions the southern constellations just, you know, and those constellations too. And what I'm trying to tell you is Job had a trained eye when he looked at the stars and the heavens and he understood their purpose and their place, and I still don't. You think I'd know that by now, but I don't know that by now, okay? And some of the things that God has accomplished, you do realize that they developed our calendar off of that. Now, when I go out there and I look at the sun and the stars and the moon and all that stuff, I can't pull down a calendar. My eye is sorely untrained to be able to go, okay, I can develop a 365-day calendar out of all that. No, I can't do that, but men did that. Not only did God give us the stars to orient us in relationship to time, but he gave us the stars and orient us in relationship to place. You do realize that People who are trained don't need Google Maps in a sailboat. They can look at the stars and circumnavigate the globe. They can hop on a boat and go, yeah, I can go to Australia. 
I just need to get it a set on the stars and I can get there. That's what I'm afraid that we do when we look at some of these difficult doctrines. We go out with untrained eyes. We look at it and we go, okay, that's what the preacher said, but I don't see it. But you need to know it's still there. You need to know that it's still a part of the grand plan and men with trained eyes can see it and they see it in a holistic sort of this is what God is doing and it's glorious and it helps orient us to what God's great plan is. Does that make sense? I don't understand the stars, but men do and they can do amazing things with them. But I am beginning to understand God's grand plan and His sovereignty beginning to understand and let me tell you what I do see with my semi-trained eye is absolutely glorious and awesome and I want you to catch a vision from that as I draw back but let me give you the end of the story so you at least know where we're going if you can't make out the maps along the way here's here's one of the most glorious end story pictures that we have and it's found in Revelation 7 9 John writes after these things I looked And behold, a great multitude which nobody could count from every nation and every tribe and peoples and tongues were standing before the throne and the Lamb of God. And then he goes on to talk about the angels and the elders. So it's everything physical and everything spiritual bowed before the throne of God in worship and praise and adoration forevermore. So that's the end picture, right? And then you look at what you're working with, what God's working with, and it's a mass of sinful rebels. And somehow I got to take these people who hate God and I've got to work in such a way as to bring them before the throne that the only thing that they love is God and they worship me forever. That's a big jump. That's a long path. But that's exactly what God is doing in the history of humanity. He's redeeming a people who will worship Him, serve Him, and love Him, and enjoy Him forever. And you're not going to think about that at 7 o'clock in the morning because you're trying to get the kids fed, get through the shower, and get to work. But that's what He's doing in the morning. And He's going to do it, and it's going to be great. And what Romans 9, 10, and 11 helps us understand is how God is accomplishing this task. And it's absolutely amazing. Cody's going to help us today at 3 o'clock understand a little bit about the history of salvation, kind of the redemptive flow. And as I went back and read all the way through Romans, skipping along the, the major thoughts along the way, I realized this is somewhat of Paul's path. If there's any book in the Bible that gives us a story of salvation history, it's kind of Romans. Paul's like, let me show you the story as far as I understand it. And so as you walk all the way from Romans 1 to 11, you see what God is doing. And when we get to Romans 12, it'll be easier. You know why Romans 12 is going to be easier? Because I'm going to be specifically telling you things that you need to do. You need to love. That's a lot easier to talk about from a pastor's perspective. You need to forgive. That's what 12 and 13 and 14, 15 and 16 look like. But right in here, this is what God is doing and how He is doing it. And it's absolutely mind-blowing. 
Now to get the path started, Paul starts with man. So let's go back to Romans 1. And I want you to look at just a few passages with me. Get off to Paul's start and let's reorient ourselves to the forest this morning. And then we'll go on to Romans chapter 10 next week. When you get to Romans 1, and I'm going to read verses 21, 22, and 23 in just a second, but let me give you just a little bit of backdrop about what God has done prior to 21, 22, and 23. Prior to this, God has created man, and He's done two things. He's created every single man in the image of God. And secondly, He's put within the heart of every single man the knowledge of God. It's a general knowledge. It's based on creation itself. But God has done this for mankind. I made you in my image and I've put something in every man's heart that he cannot deny that God is. That's what he's done. Now Paul says, I want you to watch what man did with that knowledge. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became foolish or futile in their thoughts and speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for a form or for an image in the form of, and notice the descending order, corruptible man, birds that can fly, four-footed animals that can walk, crawling creatures who don't even have legs. That was man's response to what God did for him. I made you in my image. I put the reality of me in your own heart and this is what you did. You exchanged me for an image and the image keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And you're worshiping things that crawl on the ground that don't even have arms and legs. That's what you did with what I did. So God does something else in the history of salvation and He pulls one of those men out of all those peoples now let me give you a list and I want you to keep in the perspective of ancient peoples because I'm going to come back to Romans 9 in the perspective of today. So here's a list of some of the ancient peoples that I could think about. Amalekites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, Ninevites, Egyptians, Romans, and the Chaldeans. Those were, that was my list and there's more. But all of those people did exactly the same thing with the image and the glory of God. Every man did exactly the same thing with the image and the glory of God. They just corrupted that image and tossed it aside. God says, all right, I'm going to pick one of those men. And he chose a Chaldean who was worshiping idols. And he says, all right, this one man, we're going to do something new. And that one man's name was Abraham. Abram. He brought him to himself and he says, all right, I'm going to do something different. No longer will it be the general knowledge of me through creation. No, 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 no. It's going to be the specific knowledge of me. I'm actually going to come down on a mountain. I'm going to speak to them as the mountain is consumed with a fire. And I'm going to give them my law. I'm going to teach them how I, they are supposed to live. God's like, I'm going to create a new peoples out of the sea of idolaters. Here's one man, new people. Now, when you get to Romans 2, this is what that one new people did. If you'll notice verse 17, he's going to come down to a question in verse 21, but let me read it quickly, starting in verse 17. Here's the result of what God did among Israel. But if you bear the name Jew, rely upon the law, boast in God, know His will, 
approve of the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. You're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You therefore who teach another. Do you not teach yourself? Really? In other words, out of Abraham comes an entire nation of people and that entire nation of people are religious on the outside, but they're just like everybody else on the inside. They're just externally religious and internally they still don't love God. In fact, look at the conclusion in verse 24. What a horrible conclusion to the end of this story. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And you look at that and go, what a project. I plucked one man out of the sea of idolaters... I created a whole peoples for myself. I revealed myself to them and they wound up being outwardly religious and inwardly corrupt. In fact, because of you, the Gentiles curse my name. Like, that's a failure. That's a massive failure. And so God's got to work with now a sea of people that are idolaters. One nation that He's revealed Himself to that wound up living in such a way that other peoples cursed God and we're still going to get to the throne where every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered around the throne worshiping Him, enjoying Him forever. We still have a long way to go. And so you come to Romans 3. Now turn over to Romans 3 and Paul says, let me sum up the entire race of humanity in Romans 3, 9, and 10, and 11 and 12. Here you go. This is Paul's salvation history of the condition of man. For we have already charged in the second part of verse 9. Here you go. That both Jews and all those Gentiles or Greeks are all under sin. As it stands written, there is not one single one of them's righteous, not even one. There's not one single one of them who understands, not one who seeks for God. Every single solitary one of them has turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's no one who does good. I can't even find one. That's the summary of the history of humanity. That's the, that would be the end of the story if God's grace didn't manifest itself through Christ. And so God sends one man, His Son, to rescue a peoples for Himself that are going to do different. That are going to love God from the heart and obey God from the inside out who are going to truly worship God in spirit and truth. God fixed all that with one man and that man's name is Jesus Christ. And that's why God had to become a man because He's about to rescue humanity. And so in absolute perfection of life, Without sin and word or thought and deed, Jesus comes, lives absolutely perfectly before the Father, and then goes to Calvary and dies for the bunch that's found in Romans 3, 9, 10, 11, 12. Because we could not. Not one of us could pull it off. But God fixes all that through His Son. That's found in verse 21. Notice Romans 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's absolutely no distinction now in humanity. They're all in one lumped mass. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but now being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. God gave us a hope, but it only comes through one man. And that one man is His Son. And this was the grandest moment in the history of redemption when God sent His Son and He died on the cross in your place. Because without this, we're still standing in darkness. We have absolutely no hope and no way to God. And all of a sudden, God walks right into the midst of all this sin and flips the light on and says, here you go. This is how I've restored everything. This is how I have atoned for your sins. This is how I have brought you to myself so that you can fall around the throne and worship and enjoy me forever. So Paul's like, all right, one and two and three, first half of three, I gave you humanity. But the second part of three and four and five and six and seven and eight, I'm going to give you the gospel. And he actually talks about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ for that many chapters and that long because it's that awesome. It is the only hope that we have, but it is the grandest, greatest, unimaginable thing that could ever have been done. The greatest sacrifice because the most valuable, glorious, innocent one died for the worst. The best thing, and he was never created, but you understand when I say this, the greatest, best, most awesome one in all of creation who was never created joyfully, willingly lays down His life for the worst of creation because it's us and our rebellion. And that's how God begins, if you will, restoring all things to where He can bring a people to Himself that love Him, serve Him, worship Him forever. Now turn with me to Romans 8 because Romans 8 is unique because it ends on, to me, the grandest promise in the gospel because he reminds us of just how absolutely sure this whole thing is. Look at 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, this is how God is doing this, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that Christ would be the firstborn among all kinds of brothers and sisters. And those whom He predestined, He called to Himself. And those whom He effectually called to Himself, He justified. And these whom He justified, He will glorify, or He also has glorified. It's an absolute guaranteed promise. For those of you who are in Christ, the story ends in glory. Because the story ends for us, or rather really begins for us, at the foot of the throne. Where we will know no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more disappointments, no more loads to carry. They've all been laid down. Finally, we're free and we just enjoy Him forever. And God's like, that's my promise. It's not based on you. It's what I am doing because you could not. And that's why election and predestination and all those things that cause a fuss 
are absolutely necessary to get us around the throne. To get us to who we need to be as holy people. To get us where we need to be at the foot of the Lord. Calling out to Him, celebrating Him forever. And God's like, this is how I did it. And because I did it, it will happen. And it will come to pass. And you can rest in it. So what happens in 9, 10, and 11, because he kind of finishes his gospel? 9, 10, and 11 then paints out the history of redemption where the gospel has interacted sinful men. And that's all he's doing in 9, 10, and 11. He's, he's talked about sinful men in 1, 2, 3. And he takes the gospel in 3 through 8 and he says, all right, I'm going to put them together in 9, 10, and 11. And I want you to watch what happens. So let's turn the page rather to Romans 9 and we'll see what happens. But this is the point where I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 10. So hold Romans 9, run to 1 Corinthians 10, and I want you to see all that God did. We've already read 9 and 4 in that list in 9, 4, and 5. But I was reminded this week of the other list in 1 Corinthians 10. So this is how God was working to get a particular people to Himself. Okay? Now notice verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, Paul says, that our fathers, meaning the Israelites, were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, manna, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the desert. That to me is a reminder of all that God did for them, and still with the most of them, they fell in the desert because God was not pleased with them. They were put to death. Can you imagine getting up in the morning and there's bread laying on the ground that God sent from heaven to feed you for that day? Can you imagine an entire community of people, over a million people, goes up to one rock in the middle of the desert with a glass every day to get a drink of water? And in some way, that was a metaphor for Christ that Paul understood with his trained eye. But nonetheless, that's what these people did. They literally walked through the bottom of a sea on the dry land. And when their enemies followed behind them, God killed them all. Nevertheless, even those, those marvelous things happened in their life because they're depraved and sinful people. They died in the desert because they still rejected God in, in spite of all that He did. Now that blows our minds, right? But nevertheless, you sat down at a table this morning and ate a breakfast and didn't remember that it came from the hands of God. Nevertheless, this morning you got up and put on clothes and you probably didn't stop to thank God that you had clothes to put on in this body this morning. Nevertheless, you saw your children this morning and you forgot to thank God for them because you were too busy yelling at them, trying to get them clothes for church. But you forgot that God gave those kids to you and entrusted you with life. You see, I don't know who's worse, them or us. But nevertheless, in spite of all that God does for us, we have a tendency to forget Him. And so God has to do even more to rescue a people for Himself that will remember Him and worship Him. 
So back to Romans now, and I want to show you Israel's response in a little more detail of what they did in spite of all that God did for them. Look at Romans 10 verse 21. Here's a summary statement of Israel that Paul writes down so we can remember their response to God. Notice Romans 10 21. As for Israel, God says, all the day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Remember Romans 1 and 2? Out of that sea, he drew one man, Abraham. Out of that one man, he made a nation. Out of that one nation, he revealed himself. You get to the end of that story, all that revelation of God, what did it amount to? That. All day long, I have held out my hands of mercy and grace to these people, and they've been nothing but stubborn and obstinate and disobedient. That's what they did with the revelation of me. What's more is, if you go back to chapter 9 and look at verse 32, they did more. Paul writes in 9.32, Because they did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it stands written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in reference to Christ. And he who believes in Christ will not be disappointed. And the church said, Amen. But rather than believing in him, they crucified him. That's what they did with God. God put a stumbling stone. You see, they didn't expect their king to come riding to them on a donkey or the foal of a donkey. Not into Jerusalem, and yet that's how Jesus came. They thought he was going to come with, you know, a headgear and a spear and a, you know, a shield in his hand. And they thought he was going to come and just lay down Rome and just set up them as the most prominent and powerful nation, the nation of God. That's what they were looking for. But when Jesus came riding on a donkey, they laughed at him. And they arrested him and they killed him. They stumbled over the stumbling stone or their Messiah. They didn't even recognize God. What's more than that, and it actually gets worse, look what else they did in Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit themselves or subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were disobedient. They turned away from their Messiah and crucified Him, and they made their own way to heaven. That's what they did with that. I don't need your way, Lord. I don't need your Messiah. I'm going to make my own way to heaven. I'm going to be a good person and keep your law and you'll see I deserved it all along. That's what they did with all that. And so what does God do? Because remember, we've got to get a peoples at the foot of the throne that love Him, worship Him, and serve Him forever. And you're looking at this, scratching your head going, man, what do I do with this people? I mean, this is a pretty rotten people. They just put my son on the cross. And I've still got to get some of them out of these peoples 
or out of this nation, I still got to get a group of them to the foot of the throne. How are you going to do that, God? Okay, chapter 11. Look at verse 1. Here's his answer to this. I say then, Paul writes, God has not rejected his people, has he? Oh, may it never be, Paul says, for I too am an Israelite. I'm from this group. I'm a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life, Elijah said. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, Paul writes, in the very same way as that in verse 3 and 4, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant from Israel according to God's gracious choice. That's how he got out of a sea of obstinate and rebellious people. That's how he got some of those to Calvary. That's how he got some of those to the throne room. Because God acted sovereignly in his salvation to accomplish his plan. I graciously chose some of them and I have kept them from being so foolish and obstinate and stubborn. And they're mine. And you're like, let's just answer this how this is most commonly answered. Why didn't he just give all of Israel free will to, to choose God? Why didn't he just open the door and say, all right, whomever will, y'all just come on. I'm opening the door to all of Israel. Who wants to follow me? Who wants to obey me? Who wants to submit their life to me? Well, here's the end of the story. If you'd done this, look at 927. Look back at chapter 9. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 927. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, there's so many of them you can't count them, yet it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute His word on the earth of judgment thoroughly and quickly. And just like Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity or a future generation in Israel we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. In other words, unless the Lord had done it, there would not have been any Israelites around the throne. Which reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah. If I understand the text right, and all the nations and tribes and tongues and people are going to be gathered around the throne, there's only going to be one man from Sodom and Gomorrah. And he moved there. His name is Lot. He destroyed the rest. Those nations are no more. God used them as an example of judgment. And I really think when you find Lot, you're like, dude, you're like the last one out of Sodom and Gomorrah, aren't you? Yep. My wife was on the way. She turned back. She loved sin more than she did God. I'm the only one out. And Paul writes, it would have been no different for Israel if it had not been for the grace of God. There would have been none of them that would have made it out. You see, God's got a grand plan and this is how God is working His plan. And at the end of the story, 
He's going to have someone from every nation and tribe and peoples and tongue gathered around his throne, enjoying him forever. Now, this is how awesome God is because he takes Israel's rebellion that he had made a covenant with. And because they broke the covenant, God didn't break that covenant. Because they broke the covenant, it broke open the gospel. Because God had tied himself down to one peoples, right? Remember? Hittites, Amorites, Jebusites, all those peoples. God put one to work with, so he's tied down to one people. They break the covenant with God, and that breaks open God's news to every peoples across the planet. Now notice Romans 11, verse 11. Notice he begins to talk about this. I say then, in reference to Israel, Romans 11, 11, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Oh, Paul says, may it never be. That's not the end of the story for Israel. But by their or Israel's sin or transgressions, notice, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and that's you, and that's me. Look at verse 30. He says it again. Just as, 1130, just as you once were disobedient to God, meaning the Gentiles, but now you have been shown mercy... Because of their or Israel's disobedience. You see, God even used their disobedience to bring us good news. Because if they hadn't disobeyed, we wouldn't have had an opportunity for good news. But you live in the best day ever. Because you're a Gentile and you have an opportunity to turn from your sins and follow after Christ. You don't have to turn around and look back. No, you know that there's something grand and glorious before you. If you'll just keep running for glory, you'll find that glory. You'll be one of those gathered around the throne. You could do it this morning for the glory of God. Do you realize that the door stands open, that you can repent from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy Him forever? Those are the days in which you live. We're not back in the Old Testament when you're sitting there as an Amorite or a Hittite or a Perizzite or a Chaldean going, I don't even know God. Yeah, I know. And the door is not open. And you will not know God. But here you sit as a Gentile and the door stands wide open. And you can repent and follow. 